Oh, Father, we do pray that you would speak your word and that we would speak it after you until the world is filled with your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated and join me in a prayer that this is our nation's day, O Lord, of memorial for those who have given their lives to defend it, Father, and for all those of the armed services who have fulfilled that great law of Christ, that no greater love than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. And we ask you, Father, to empower and protect our surviving military men, our surviving law enforcement people, O Lord, who protect us each day from the evils that so seriously beset us in this life, in our day-to-day walk. We thank you for their service, O Lord, and for their part in our Christian life and in our national life and community, Father. We pray a special blessing upon those men this day. Amen. We'll open to Romans chapter 5 again. I want you to know I've entitled this sermon, Grace Abounded. And as I read through my notes this morning, which is my custom, I always go through them again on Sunday morning, you know, when it's too late to change stuff. (laughs) And um, I realized I never really got to that subject. But that's why we have next week. That's why God invented next week and series and series of preaching in the Bible. But I will touch on it, and I think, um, I think the point of grace all through it will be at least implied. So read along with me, if you will, chapter 5 in the book of Romans. <clears throat> I'll begin with verse 9 just to get a little overlap of context here, and I'll read down through the end of the, of the chapter. And so Paul writes, as we have heard several times now, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Saved from wrath. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, But we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all men sinned. For until, until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment, the judgment which came from one offense, resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offenses might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. O Father, let grace reign through the ministry of Jesus Christ in this church, and it is in his name we pray. Amen. That's quite a passage. (laughs) There's a lot in there. And as you know, 
you don't do justice to a passage like that in, a, in an hourly session or thereabouts. Not that you're giving me a time limit, I understand. But um, we'll try to take it apart a little piece by piece. We'll begin in verse 12, where the apostle says, Therefore, connecting it, of course, to the thoughts beforehand on justification and reconciliation in Christ. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. All right? It's a fairly simple relationship here. Um, But Paul's dealing with a lot of different factions, if you will. And I don't mean factions in the bad sense of the word, but there are Jews and Gentiles in the Roman church. There are the initiated, the educated, and the uninitiated, and the uneducated. And he's trying to bring a lot of things here together. And we'll speak this morning to some of those things. And they are myriad. There's many of them. And so it gets a little complicated to really go through all of this. Um, So what we should do first is step back and look at the big picture. Instead of going right up to a... Did you ever see an Impressionist painting? Now, I learned to love Impressionism. At first, I didn't like it much. And I've seen uh, very many of them over the years. I studied Western art in college. And um, I much fell in love with the paintings of Van Gogh. And I'll tell you, when you see a print, it isn't anything like seeing the real thing because the real thing has texture. But if you walked up to one of those paintings up close, it would just be a mass of color and texture, which, which are all important to the whole. But if you stand back, it's a beautiful painting. And you can enjoy it all first, and then you can go in and talk about the details, you see. And so what we have before us is this difficult but pivotal passage. <clears throat> On Thursday evening, we're talking about a lot of things in Genesis, and a lot of them are difficult concepts to understand, but because they're difficult doesn't mean we back away from them, but we go toward them and we make of them what we can with the gifts that God has put in our midst. So this is a difficult passage, but it's a pivotal passage, so we have to work our way through it. And this is kind of a pivotal section in this in this epistle, so we want to make sure we understand these concepts before we move on and try to understand some of the um, greater truths that the Apostle has in store for us in later passages. So before we get into the particulars of the case, we ought to stand back and consider the overall picture that the Apostle is presenting to us. Paul is answering for us, and for anyone who will listen, the big questions of life. He's giving us the answers to things that plague men of all generations and of all persuasions. Really, friends, men have different opinions, but they all have the same questions. Think about it. Men all have the same questions. And so he makes these two initial propositions, and they revolve around sin and death. Now, everyone has to face sin and death not just the Christian. We're the only ones that, <clears throat> that talk about it intelligently, it seems to me, but of course we have a great source and a great teacher to inform us. But sin entered the world, Paul writes, and death came through sin. And then he posits the reality for all men to see. He speaks what no one may argue against. Friends, no one can argue against at least one of those propositions. Every pagan mind, every philosopher, every evolutionist must face the inescapable reality of life that Paul is positing here. However you think it happened, whatever caused things to be as they are, all men must admit this one inescapable truth, and that is that all men die. You would have to be insane to deny that. So if you're denying that today, you need some help from me. Get in the office. No, all men die. And all men know that all men die, right? I don't think anyone really is ready to argue against that fact. So Paul posits that fact, all right? In secular parlance, we may even confidently say, um, 
all men die, and there are none who escapes, no, not one, as Paul said earlier, about sin. We live in a society in an age where people strive for something that they will never attain. We love to say things like, oh, the years have been kind to you. Really? You're that old? I said that to someone this week. I meant it, too. I was quite surprised. Oh, how do you keep yourself looking so good, so fit? And then we hear all the regimens of vitamins and workouts and Botox and collagen. And what's the cycle machine? The Peloton, the miracle worker, keeps death at bay. We get hair implants, tanning spas. By the way, I've, I've had all of these things. If, if only I can cheat death of a few years or months or days or make it look like I'm cheating death, it's good enough. You know, I'm going to tell you, when we were kids, you know, we were Italians. <laughs> when a woman's husband died in her youth, she wore black for the rest of her life. Does anyone have relatives like that? I know maybe the Portuguese. Yeah. <laughs> they, um, they wore black for the rest of their lives. They would never dye their hair. I mean, these ladies started looking old when they were 40. Today, we do all these things, right? And you really don't know how old people are anymore. But um, that's kind of a new thing. That's kind of a... Um, cheating death sort of mentality that we had. It's all, about, it's all about our body. The spirit is less of a concern, I think. Some of these very youthful-looking people, I can tell you, have very old, decrepit spirits in them. So all these things are done in an attempt to put off the inevitable. If only I can look younger. If only I can cheat death of a few more years or months or days. Friends, I've seen many a beautiful, beautifully preserved creature lying in a casket. How many funerals have you been to where they say, ah, he looks good? (laughs) Have you ever had people say that? The older people love to say, oh, they did such a good job. He looks looks so good. He looks great, but he's just as dead. It's almost like if you put enough makeup on him, maybe that'd do the trick. But I can tell you that long life, friends, in some ways is vastly overrated. And I'm not going to preach against long life. I hope we all have one. But it may mean living for a series of years as a perpetual medical patient. Right? Towards the end of life, sometimes for decades, people are, are just medical patients. You know, back in 2006, I was 50 years old. I had a serious heart operation, as you know. And um, I became this suddenly this medical patient. You know, here I was a... Well, maybe some of you kids don't get this, but at 50, you're still a young man. You can do a lot of things, all right? And um, I had to go for the checkups and the things, and there were prescriptions that I had to take at the time. And, you know, you have to go to these follow-up doctor visits and things so they can keep track of what's happening to you, and you're, all, and you're glad to do it. But here I am, 50 years old. I want to get through this part of it and then get on and not be this perpetual patient. I kept saying things like, I want my life back. And I did get it back. But I remember going to those waiting rooms and seeing all those people who were the perpetual patients. And they were sort of, like some of them were just sort of okay with it. It was life now. Oh, yeah, when I leave here, my husband will pick me up. We'll go to another doctor's office and we'll stop for breakfast in between. And they had the whole regimen was all about being a perpetual patient again. Sometimes old age has that in store for us. You know, uh, it's nice to have long life. It's nice to have quality of life. So sometimes just living long and lingering long, well, maybe it's a little overrated. I remember I went into one uh, waiting room over in Taunton, and it was just the saddest place. These people were all in there, and some hobbled in, and some were on walkers. And thankfully, I could still walk and stuff. I wasn't in that kind of a situation. In fact, they made me better, faster, stronger. Six million dollar man, forget it. Um, so I went in, and there, and there were these people, and it was quiet, it was stuffy, and it was winter, and it was dreary. And everyone's head was down, and they were just waiting to be called. And I thought, who am I going to talk to? I always have to talk to someone, right? Who, who am I going to start with? I said, I don't know what to do in a room like this. So I went up, you know how they open the glass window? And I went up, and there's the girl on the other side of the glass waiting for you to come. And the glass opens up, and I said, I'll have a large cheeseburger, a a 
a large fry and a milkshake, and the place erupted in laughter. So I think I gave them maybe better medicine <laughs> than they were going to get. And uh, I've used that many times since. It works every time. Try it out. Um, <clears throat> sometimes long life can be overrated. And I'm not downplaying it. I'm just saying I've, I've seen the elderly lose all their loved ones and friends and be sort of alone in the world. And it's, there's a sadness involved with long life as well as a triumph, I suppose, of, of sorts. I'm all for bodily stewardship. It's a righteous endeavor. But for the unbeliever, there are two things that they ought to consider. The first, it's a denial of sin, which is the force in the universe that will one day win out over your mortal body. Friends, men die. The question is why. Paul tells us both. The second thing is that your preservation is a profitable industry, right? So not only do we want to cheat death out of a few years, but we want those years to be spent in physical beauty and financial prosperity. Yet with all our attempts towards some form of immortality and perpetual youth, all men still eventually die. And there's no treatment or regimen that can allay that certain epitaph. In fact, Lloyd-Jones, when talking about this, said, you know, you can look at a baby in the womb or a baby on its first day born or at conception where life truly does begin. And you can say, wow, life begins. But you know, as soon as life begins, death begins doing its work. And we don't like to think of it that way because there's so much, many years to come. And in our view, it seems like a, long, like a long time. And there's so many promises to be fulfilled and hopes and dreams and all of those things. But ultimately speaking, we might as well face the only reality that we really can't argue about. And that is that all men die. The apostle presents death as a contagion, as though we can catch it from one another. It seems... It's a thing we can catch. Death, friends, is the true pandemic. Whether viruses and other pathogens confront society on a daily basis, whether man and his considerable medical and scientific acumen create cures for the various diseases, death still comes to all men. We can all lock down. We can all wear our surgical masks. We may all let the technician inject us with the needle of power and purity, which has also become the initiation ceremony into polite society. But in the end, even the vaccinated will die. And I think that we've seen that even the vaccinated might, may die of the very thing they hope to cheat. It's as if we're all ready to say, I know I'm going to die, but at least I won't die of that. We may make the drug companies and the politicians rich by our obedience to their propaganda, and yet no matter what measures we take, no matter what diseases we ward off with our temporary humanistic scientific remedies, we and they will all surely die, and that's Paul's premise. And there's no medical opinion on earth that can offer you a prescription that will cancel out that prognosis. And so Paul posits this undeniable reality of life. Every ear should have been listening when it was preached. But Paul doesn't stop here. The world has to stop here. They won't take the next step. Paul gives the cause of death. And there's only one. It's these causes of the universality of death that excite some debate on the subject of death. It's the causes that are controversial. Not the fact of death. Everyone has to accept it, right? But the cause... We want to argue about what the cause of it is. All men of all persuasions must face the reality of death, but not all men agree on the cause or causes of our universal death sentence. But Paul is not lax in proclaiming the cause. Friends, the universality of death is the result of the universality of sin. They go hand in hand. But the world doesn't want to talk about sin, right? I watched... Pundits this week after that horrific school shooting, and I saw one lily white little news journalist, and she's a believer. She's, a, she's an evangelical believer, and she had on a secular psychologist, and 
They were asking the psychologist, how do we tell our children about evil? And at least the psychologist said, well, we have to be honest. Don't try to trick your kids. And all that. I mean, you've got, as the parent, you know when they can take how much knowledge, right? Um, but she was saying at least be honest and upfront about it. But, of course, the, the news girl was like, so what do we tell them? Do we tell them that you're good, but there are evil people out there that want to get you? Well, you can, but I don't think that's the Christian answer. I was a little um, taken aback that she didn't know much about sin. So Paul goes on. He takes the next step. All men die because all men sin. That's the answer. Sin's the only real cause of death. Through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. Thus death spread to all men because all sinned. You've heard me say all problems are theological. I've said this all week. I said it on Thursday night to the Bible study. I have watched pundits all week. And you've got to know now, any time of day you can get the news. When we were kids, you came home at 6 o'clock, you got the news for an hour, and then the rifleman was on. You know, it's, it's like today, it's all around the clock. It's on your phone. You get notices. You know, so they, you're hearing these same things over and over again. These same questions are being posed. Friends, the stupidity that comes out of trying to explain that kind of evil without theology is a sad reality in life. Only theology can explain this. You can't explain this any other way. I have told you, and I haven't said it of my own accord. I've, I've quoted from Wayne Mack and John MacArthur who have said this, and I, they're quoting from a famous Puritan who, if memory serves, was William Ames. All problems are theological problems, and I truly believe this. I've demonstrated that to you many times, and the simple way to demonstrate it is to say, well, it seems to me there are some problems in life. I'm broken down on the highway. This is hardly a theological problem. Well, for the Christian, we have to look at it that way, because for the Christian, your problem's not your problem. How you handle your problem is your problem, and the Christian understands that. Will I handle this in a righteous way, in a way that's pleasing to God, or will I handle it in an unrighteous and sinful way? So all problems are theological problems, but in the case of the inescapable, inescapable reality of, the universal, of, the, of universal death, only a theological answer even comes close to sufficing as showing cause for this fact of life. Friends, death is the only real fact of life. We like to throw in taxes, but some people don't pay. It's really just death. And sin is the only real cause of death. Now, Paul could have closed it up, but that's not his way. He's going to beat this thing. Death is the first and final and only reliable prognosis for the patient. Can you imagine? I'm sorry, Mrs. Smith. You're a perfect specimen of human health and vigor. However, I'm afraid I must still offer you this grim prognosis of your condition. You see, the fact that you're alive and well today bode very badly for you in the future. I'm afraid I must tell you that you're going to die. You may run and work out and stretch your long, lean muscle mass... You may eat your fruits and vegetables or take the pills that they advertise inexhaustibly on TV. You can take them in pill form. You may add supplements to your daily regimen. You may inject Botox and collagen and get rid of all those nasty fine lines and wrinkles. And yet, the diagnosis is the same. Death will take you in the end. It's only the theologian that has the answer for you. I'm sorry, Mrs. Smith. I really can't help you with this one. It's the preacher, friends, who has the remedy. It's the man of faith and him alone who may offer you the only true explanation for the dire medical condition called life. And that's the disease of sin. Sin is always and has always been the real pandemic, and theological diagnoses are the only reliable ones. As I've said, I've seen news anchors try to explain the mass shooting of children in a school try to explain such a thing in psychological terms, try to explain such heinous wickedness without noting the reality of sin. We like to say, you're not a bad boy, you're a very good boy, you just did a very bad thing. 
Now, theologically, that's not true. Now, I don't take, I don't take objection to the fact that you may have a place for that in the incremental training of your child, but at some point he has to find out that from Adam to Moses, all men died because all men sinned. And the reason he says from Adam to Moses, because after Moses there was the law, and then we knew exactly what the sins were. This is the most vivid picture, what we saw this week, of sin causing death that we've seen in our lifetimes. What caused all that death and destruction? It was sin. Sin's a real thing. It's a real force. In fact, Paul personifies it. In fact, all of Scripture personifies sin. It was personified first in the Garden of Eden by a serpent. You could say the serpent tempted Eve, or you could say sin tempted Eve, and it would mean the same thing. And that same thing that kills the innocent masses of society will also kill the killers of those innocent masses someday. Try to explain man's inhumanity to man apart from the universality of sin. You'll fall short. There's no scientific answer. There's no humanistic answer. There's no political, philosophical, medical, psychological remedy that can hold back the wages of sin and death. There's no legislation that'll stop this. There's no government program, no special interest donation that can stop the carnage that sin desires to inflict upon the world. Friends, the church, the word of God, the gospel has the answer for the world. The only answer. The Bill Gateses and the George Soroses of the world may give their billions to study the problem. But if they do not study theology, their investment will fail and fall to ashes. And if you see either of these men around town, please tell them that I'll offer them the answers free of charge. I'd like to take billions for it, but the Lord says, no, all may come and drink of the waters of life freely from the fountain of life. I'll charge them a lot for parking, though. (laughs) These are the big questions. These are the big questions. These are the real subjects that need addressing in society. Who will you look to to protect you from sin? Friends, please believe me. The Republicans won't protect you from sin. I know we like them better than the other guys, but they won't protect us from sin. You know. Ultimately, the problem will still be there. Who will, who, in whose hands will you entrust your life? Into whose arms will you throw your eternal soul? Or the souls of your children? What about our children's souls? Where are we going to put those precious souls? The ones that mean more to us than our own souls. There's but one repository, one safe lockbox for a human soul, and it's the arms of Christ. He's the only one ever heralded for overcoming the ravages of sin. Men have tried. No one has achieved it but Christ alone. Sin lives off and requires blood, and if you haven't noticed, the more blood it drinks, the thirstier it becomes. There's no assuaging of the appetites of sin. Well, maybe if we just give the bad people this, they'll leave us alone. Sin requires blood, so Christ gave blood. But he didn't give your blood. He didn't give my blood. He didn't give anyone's blood but his own. And that's the gospel. That's how grace abounds. He gave his blood and it was sufficient. And that's the apostle's message for us. We need a truthful diagnosis. That's the only truthful diagnosis. We need a true and tested remedy. But sadly, the only one, the only true tested remedy ever offered is summarily rejected by most people of most eras of history. We're a sad people today. I think America is sad today. I know I don't speak for America, but it seems to me they're sad. I'm sad. We're a people who cry out for grace. And yet the only source of grace in the universe has been banished from society. What are we to do? Friends, Jesus Christ was banished from the schools in the 60s when I was in the schools. I didn't know anything about this stuff then. No one ever thought of shooting up a place in those days. But the schools kicked out the only real dispenser of grace. Remember what happened 
When Grace left the Garden of Eden, you needed guards at the gate. Cherubim with swords. Don't mess with a cherubim with a sword. And that's what we have to do now in our country. We have to put swords at the gates. Gates that lift up, maybe some barbed wire around every school or fortress. I mean, I don't know, but I don't think I'm exaggerating. They're not allowed to call upon his name anymore. He's been canceled due to the fact that he will not let sinners define him. So he's been canceled. Friends, if you haven't noticed, Jesus is not woke. He will not let wokesters define him. He defines himself. He's been rejected because he's intolerant, friends. He's intolerant of sin. And we're a society confused by the constant call for universal tolerance as though tolerance and love are the same thing. Every parent knows tolerance is not love. There's so many things. Your child you love. No one in the world more than your child. And there's so many things you will not tolerate in him. That's love. I'll read it to you. You've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you're without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate and not sons. In fact, tolerance of sin is hatred. The man that spareth the rod hateth his son, the Bible says. We've forgotten this because of the adolescent whine of society that you must take me as I am, no matter what I say or think or do, and present that as love. Worse, present it as freedom. We've lost our way because we won't look at the real cause, which is our whiny little sins. It's our tolerance that, alas, we have mistaken for love. That's the cause of all our societal pain in the present moment, in the present moment, rather. You know, in the final analysis, (coughs) excuse me, all men really wanted was peace. We thought we wanted other things. We thought we wanted equity. We thought we wanted tolerance of sin. We thought we wanted citizenship in a new land. I suspect we'll find there's some <clears throat> immigrants, maybe Ill, even illegal, and I'm just thinking this way, I'd have no basis, who came here for a better life and went to that school. But America's the home of the free, land of the brave, but still, we're all sinners. There's a lot of evil. It's not safe. Some might have come for citizenship in a new land. American dream. There's no... I heard Vishal Mangalwadi say this. He was, he was from India. He said, there's no Indian dream. There's no Mexican dream. No Russian dream. There's an American dream. Other countries don't have a dream. And ours has faded. Because we won't look square in the face at the causes of our pain. We thought we owed the greatest sinners of the world a great debt. So we toned down opposition to their wickedness, and the wicked repaid our good by turning it against us. Peace cannot come to a world that tolerates violence, friends, but it certainly can't come to a world that celebrates so much sin. And the reason that none of these egregious social conditions can be remedied is because we've made the great humanistic error in our calculations. We've made the great theological error of confusing tolerance with love. We bought into the adolescent wine that love ought to tolerate sin. And this canard of unconditional love. You know, love is conditioned on some things, friends. That's good theology. If you believe in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. If, wherever you see if, it's conditional, right? So we come up with a phrase and we fall in love with a phrase that has no theological basis. 
Paul's well on his way to proclaiming the great overarching truths, and yet he cannot help himself from embarking on a journey of the great and wonderful particulars of biblical theology. So I've given you the big picture. Paul gives you the big picture in verse 12. But then from verses 13 to 17, he puts in a parenthesis. Did you notice that in your Bible as you're reading? It's in parentheses. In other words, he could have left it out. But he has to do what preachers do. And let's look, on, look at this for a bit. He can't help himself from embarking on a journey of the great and wonderful particulars of biblical theology. And frankly, neither can I. After the premise which we have in verse 12, the apostle goes on to apprise the reader of several theological points, and he puts them in parentheses in case the reader has forgotten them, because really he already made those points, but he's trying to bring us along so we don't forget what he just taught, so we get to this new lesson that he's opening up to us. And so from verses 13 to 17, Paul digresses as all great preachers digress in the presentation of the gospel, and he turns in his digression to the introduction and the purposes of the law. And so we read this lengthy parenthetical statement. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. That's a lot already. But he goes on, but the free gift is not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification." For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. There's a lot of stuff to wade through there that the apostle almost didn't put in there because he was on to something else. And we have it before us. We have to go through it. It'll take some time. But notice one thing about what I just read. He called, this may be the only place in Scripture where he calls righteousness a gift. Righteousness is given to you. You don't earn it. You don't make it. You don't create it. You can't manufacture it. It's a gift. Society can be given that gift if God's so pleased. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and confess their sins, right? I will hear from heaven. I will heal the land. You know how it goes, right? Oh, the blessed obsessive-compulsive disorder of the Apostle Paul. He wants to move on. He wants to get straight to the point. But he's concerned that the readers like us have not ingested all the necessary doctrinal history of the relationship between law and grace. And so he obsessively inserts this lengthy parenthesis to make certain that we don't miss a thing. This is why it's hard to preach. Guys like Paul. But you know what I love about people like Paul and people like Luther is they're really just guys. (laughs) You know, we say the great apostle. Paul would never call himself the great apostle. He'd call himself the apostle with all the requisite authority of an apostle. But Peter and Paul, they didn't call themselves great. We call them great. But as a preacher, he's always on the lookout for the critic when he makes a statement. He's always conjecturing in his head what might be the objection in his teaching from the more theologically educated in his audience, and in this case, that's the Jews. They knew about the law. He skipped over the law. And now he has to go back and say, no, no, the law's there, the law's important, but it may have a different purpose than you thought it had. And so he has to teach on the law. In order to talk to grace, to a, talk grace to... Um, a theologically diverse church like Rome, he had to deal with this issue of the law. And so he takes a moment to qualify his propositions. He takes a moment to explain and to amplify the prerequisite teaching so that no one may be left behind in his glorious message for them. Do you know what a prerequisite teaching is? When we were in college, you would go up to uh, to register for your classes, uh, you know, in the spring. 
and they'd set up all these tables, at least at our college, where Karen and I went. They'd set up these tables, and there'd be a representative there, and they'd show you what classes you could take, and you're all excited you're going to take this class and that class, and you'd go up to this table over here, and you're going to take um, archaeology. And it's a great class, and they're going to take you on a dig. You're going to be Indiana Jones. You're going to go to Cairo or somewhere, and you're going to dig in the dirt and find evidence of vast civilizations. So you sign up for archaeology, and they say, um, Mr. Kassir, I'm sorry, um, you've got to take the prerequisite. The prerequisite is over at that table. You've got to go sign up for that. That's in-class study. There's a lot of books to read. You've got to get through all that. Then you can come here and dig in the sand. And, uh, and find out and do all these exciting things. We can't let you do this. You don't have the background. You won't understand what you're digging about if we don't over here tell you all these things. So you have to take the prerequisite. Anybody remember any of this? The prerequisite. I want to take advanced creative writing. Have you taken simple creative writing? <laughs> you know? Um, so, there's a, so that's what Paul's doing. He's going, I want to get into this thing about the universality of sin, of grace, of death, of grace abounding, where sin abounds. But I have to give you all this prerequisite stuff. You have to get through this first. Now, I've complained to you many times of this very thing in Scripture. You see, the Bible is not all about style. Have you noticed that? The Bible's not. I was an English teacher. I would flunk the Apostle Paul's style for style. He would need to do a lot of editing it's been observed that Paul's writing style is wanting. We have addressed this in the Thursday evening Bible study. Moses had the same problem. He doesn't give enough detailed information. We're starving for it. And Paul gives us more than we need. Genesis seems woefully bereft of details in order for us to make confident conclusions about certain important theological matters. So we keep giving our theories, which are great. And we try to put them out there and, um, and see which ones stick. So I must say that there's, that's much the case here. Not that Paul leaves out details, but that his writing style is a little cumbersome. Peter has much the same problem. You ever read Peter? He has these run-on sentences. You finally, you've read a page and a half, and there's a period, and you stop for a break, and you rejoice, and you have a drink. I've noted many times that if the Bible were written today, there's not a publisher in the world who would accept it apart from brutal editing and rewrites. But rather than fault the apostle for this seeming defect, listen how Lloyd-Jones deals with this. He embraces the humanity of Paul in this. He celebrates the apostle's personality. And so he wrote this. Is this bad literary style? It is. But the apostle frequently forgot all about style. Thank God he did, he writes. Style has almost killed the Christian church and her message, it seems to me. And then he goes on to give the history of all the <clears throat> cumbersome, verbose preachers that preached all these highfalutin ideas and never really got to the gospel. It was all style and no substance. So Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, they began to write pleasing essays and homilies rather than sermons. The manner became more important than the matter. The style mattered more than the substance. The important thing was not so much the truth which was being declared, but the way in which it was being declared. I love to hear some of those old Southern Baptist preachers who don't have a college education just say what needs to be said and be done with it. So Lloyd-Jones goes on to exonerate Paul from criticism. And he wrote this, Nothing is more fatal than to think of the apostle in terms of a mere literary man. This isn't just some scholar. This is a man of God. And he, then he goes on. He was an evangelist, a preacher, a teacher, a pastor, who had to write in the midst of a busy and often harassed life and often from a prison cell. When you're writing in a prison cell, you might not care if you had a few extra commas. I think Lloyd-Jones is right. Paul does digress from his main point. What is obvi always obvious with Paul is that every word is designed to impart the greatest amount of necessary information. We have to remember our own in inadequacies as human beings and the fact that in spite of such things, God still chose men to impart divine knowledge to other men. He still wanted men to do this. God, of all beings in the universe, knew he gave, he gave imperfect beings a perfect task. 
and he was, and if he's okay with it, then me and Lloyd Jones are okay with it. God still chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, so in all our wisdom, hold on to our humility. And so keep in mind that the scriptures are like the church, and the church is like Christ in this. They're both human and divine. Now, we don't claim Christ's divinity, but Christ claims our humanity, right? He's human and he's divine. And so he shares our weaknesses. Isaiah said, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Those are our weaknesses. Jesus wept, right? The church, likewise, it's both human and divine. There's a lot of humans in here. In fact, I'm pretty certain everyone in here is a human. And yet, you're divine. Now, you're not divine in nature, but the divine nature, you're partakers of the divine nature. Peter's words. The divine nature is in you. This is kind of a mix, right? So the church is human and divine. It's filled with human beings, and those beings are filled with the Holy Spirit. It's true, it's a volatile combination at times. It's also a wonderful combination. It's also a glorious combination. So in the defect, try to see the glory. As Paul once said to another church, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these bestow the greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body having given greater honor to that part which lacks it. God had no problem dealing with all our inadequacies and putting us together and calling it his blessed bride. And so now it was I who digressed. But Paul's made his grand, his grand proposition, friends, through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men. And there they are, the two great truths of humanity. Number one, we die. Number two, we die because of sin. But in saying this, let's not pass by the apostles' precision of words. Sin, he writes, entered the world. All right? It entered in. That word in the Greek could have been, could have been translated invaded. Sin invaded the world. Now, sin came in by stealth, but it was still an invasion. Right? It's an apostolic understatement to say sin entered. Indeed, it came in, but it was an invasion. Sin is an invasive intruder into a perfect society that God created. We all know the story. Sin came by stealth, and though the first couple were made perfectly in the image of God, their perfections had one vulnerability. It may be characterized that they were made innocent but not perfect. I've said that. It might be more accurate to say that their bodies were perfect but simply not yet glorified. And so having stated the great truths of Genesis, the apostle knows that the Jews in the church will demand an explanation of the place of the law in our salvation. Friends, we had all these centuries of the law, from Moses to Jesus Christ. 1,500 years of the law of Moses. God gave it by a miracle on a mountain with fire. And Moses had to go up the mountain. He stayed there 40 days and came down with tablets written by God's own finger, the only part of the, of the word of God that he didn't entrust to man. He wrote it himself. And so the Jews that were there want to know about the law. You know, on Thursday evenings, I, a lot of times I'll make a timeline on the whiteboard, and I'll put a cross on the timeline. That's where Jesus entered the world, right? And 500 years, we'll go 500 in increments backwards. And sometimes we go forwards, but backwards, we go 500 years before roughly that was the, the, the Babylonian exile of the Jews, right? 500 years before that, 1,000 years before Christ was David and Solomon's reign for 80 years, the peak of that whole civilization. 500 years before that was Moses, right? 1,500 years before Christ. And if you're interested, 500 years before that was Abraham. And then after that, it gets a little murky. And you don't know how many thousands of years go back to the Tower of Babel and then to the flood of Noah and then back to creation and all the other things. And so from Moses to Jesus, the law was there. And Paul has to deal with that reality. The Jews want to know. They spent their lives obeying their parents by following this law exactly as it was written. 
And so he adds this lengthy, somewhat cumbersome parenthesis, and he says that the entrance of sin into the world preceded the entrance of the law. Remember, doctrinal truth depends upon historical accuracy. That's why we have the timeline, to remind us when things happened, right? They are interrelated things, history and truth. Remember the rule of Gresham Machen. He said, Jesus died, that's history. Jesus died for our sin, that's doctrine, right? But Jesus, a real man, lived a real life and died a real death. That's history. Without that, the doctrine makes no sense. So Paul has to deal with the historical fact of the law in the life of Israel for 15 centuries so that he can move on. Truth depends upon historical truth. Truth depends upon the accurate portrayal of physical reality. Adam had to be born in order that he could fall. And he wasn't born, per se, as you know. He was created. He had to sin in order that he may die. And so the relationship prompts the eternal questions of life. Do we sin because we're sinners, or are we sinners because we sin? Paul's clear on the point. We are sinners because Adam sinned. Death spread to all men. It started with Adam. We caught it from Adam. It's an inherited trait. Surely we sin because we're sinners. It's our nature to sin, our fallen nature. But there is a caveat here, if I'm reading Paul correctly. Even though we're sinners by nature, sin is not imputed to us until we break the law. But it's guaranteed you'll break the law. In other words, sin's not imputed to the sinner until he sins. He's born a sinner. It's his condition. That's one of the definitions of sin. You see, sin is an act, and sin is a force. And so sin is not imputed until the sinner sins, but his nature is certain to direct itself there. And Paul does not desire that the Jews in the early church be left out of this discussion, and so he addresses the question of the law. But he does it in what might seem to them a new and creative way. You see, Paul admits to the dispensation of the law. The law came through Moses, and that was thousands of years after Adam walked the earth. Agreed? Thousands of years. He knows that from Adam to Moses, there was no law in the formal sense of the term. Law actually came in, as we saw on Thursday evening, right after the flood, when God renewed the covenant with that he had with Adam, but he added capital punishment for sins, of the, for, um, for murder and such things. So he added law, and law enforcement. That's a God-given gift, law enforcement, into society. He's going to try to mitigate sin by enforcing it and crowding it out of society. So Paul admits that there was the law, and that the law came through, Mo- through Moses, and that thousands of years after Adam walked the earth... He knows that from Adam to Moses there was no law in the formal sense, yet death still reigned at that time, and it reigned over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of Adam, he says. What does he mean? Well, they didn't break direct commandments. Why? They weren't written down. There weren't any. They weren't formal. Men's sin may be much more subtle than that, yet the sin nature of man will have its true expression, law or no law. And so Paul is not remiss in saying so. And so he does not dismiss the introduction of the law. He adds it in, in this cumbersome little parenthesis. He does not ignore the law and its consequences, but he does something they must have, must have seen revelational to those people in the early church, specifically to the born-again Jews in the church at Rome. Paul shows that the law is totally inadequate a device to eradicate sin. Sin's the problem. Law was a temporary solution or a temporary remedy, but it wasn't a real solution. And law never came to offer salvation. And that's where the Jews missed it. And he makes the point, you see. So he's dealing with the historical reality. And by the way, I know sometimes when we get into all of these issues, people say, it's so hard, it's very hard to understand, and they go to Karen and they complain about my style. And Karen always exonerates me, and she says, she says, don't worry, Dan's very repetitive. He'll say it over and over again. <laughs> Thank you, dear. Uh, <laughs> but it's true. I don't expect everyone to get all these picky points right now. But we'll go over this. 
And I, it's difficult, but you know something? It is worth it. It is so worth it to understand Paul's teaching, even though it gets cumbersome and meticulous. All right? And remember, he's dealing with Jews, and Jews are meticulous. They love jots and tittles, right? So Paul tells them something that had to be revelational to them. The law was to mitigate sin, but it could not bring salvation to you. There's no salvation through the law. Salvation was never imparted through the keeping of the law. No one got saved by keeping the law. The primary purpose of the law was, in fact, the opposite. It was to convict us of sin. It was a judge. It was a cherubim standing at the gate saying, you sinned. The law always was there to convict us. To pronounce judgments upon it, or rather, the primary purpose of the law was to convict of sin, to name the sin. We like to have names for our sins. Murder, stealing. It's good to have a name. Right? We, we know what it is. We can name it. We can point to it. To pronounce judgments upon it was the law. This is the judgment for this sin. We say, oh, all sin's the same. It's not all the same. Because if it was all the same, Moses would have written something like, eye for eye, eye for tooth, eye for life. Like everything, everything you do, you'd, you'd lose your eye. But he didn't say that. He said if you put out someone's eye, you lose your eye. You take his life, you, use, you lose your life. It's a greater sin, greater punishment. So Paul teaches these concepts, you see? So salvation was never imparted through the keeping of the law. Its purpose was to convict us of sin and make us see the need for a Savior. A second use of the law, which is not addressed here, is that it's pronounced in order to mitigate sin in society. So I'm digressing a little from Paul. But the, the law was given. The law was good to mitigate sin in society. It's all right. They had to go. They, they told me beforehand. Um, <clears throat> And so that was the second use of the law. You see, the advent of human government was supposed to become an obstacle to the progression of sin in society. And I must say, as a student of history, that it was somewhat successful in accomplishing that task. Law and law enforcement does mitigate sin. It slows it down, right? You don't rush into the bank when the cop's standing there. You find the bank with no cop. If you're smart, you know, World Magazine has a, a little section that's about stupid crimes. You know, like the guy that, that, robbed, the, uh, that robbed the store during, uh, just after it had snowed, and they just followed his footprints in the snow. And, but, you know, there's all kinds of these things like this, you know. But so, uh, thank, thankfully, not all robbers are, are very smart, but... The advent of human government was supposed to become an obstacle to the progression of sin in society, and I must say, as a student of history, it was quite successful. But we must also observe that human government comes with human liabilities, and so the law does bear the same human faults and corruptions as the humans who pronounce and litigate infractions of law. So law and government are legitimate authorities, but they're not perfect authorities. All right? Parents are legitimate authorities, but they're not perfect, right? Men are legitimate heads of household, ladies, but they're not perfect. So government has the same liabilities as the humans who run it. Law has no defense against causes of sin in society. It doesn't stop the cause. Its power is only to litigate and convict. It is totally inefficient to prevent sin from happening. Right? Verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. The law made the offense worse by naming it, like we've just said. It made it egregious. It made it a fearful thing. But when sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Friends, grace abounded. That's the title of the sermon, and the sermon is just about over. But it finally got to grace abound. So next week, guess what we'll talk about? Grace abounding. Grace is superior to law. Grace overwhelms sin. John said, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness could not put it out. Hallelujah. Right? Sin is, grace is greater than sin. Right? Government programs aren't greater than sin. 
Grace is greater than sin. God's grace. Plead for it. And such a majestic statement as this must wait for its own time to be sufficiently heralded. For the present, consider John's proclamation on the subject. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Amen. A father in Jesus' name, imprint the force of this, your holy word, upon our souls and in our minds, O Lord, that we might see the truth of it and live by it and proclaim it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.